The generosity of the West enabled unaccountable leaders to plunge their nations into debt deeper than ever before. The system was, as Payer writes in Lent and Lost, a straightforward Ponzi scheme. The new loans went straight to paying for the old loans. The system needed to grow in order to avoid collapse. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. Holy crap, what is up guys? It has been a long time since I have had an episode and I'm very, very sorry about that. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday and a happy new year coming up very soon. If you're following on Twitter, then you know it's been quite, quite the week for me. Um, I tried so hard to get any time to record and it was just one thing after the other. As soon as I wasn't even keeping up. Basically, the list of things was we did our like two to three day uh, Christmas with the entire family, came home, and we were about to have like a record cold temperature. It's going to be like nine degrees here in North Carolina. Usually, it just almost never gets that cold. And uh, our heat was dead. So we called people out immediately to try to get the heat fixed. And they turned it on, and it's pumping carbon monoxide into the house. There was a stress crack in the heat exchanger, which means the whole thing was screwed. So I was like, oh yeah, cool. Five grand to get it fixed, and it'll only take like five days. Which was, our problem was, you know, a couple hours out in the middle of the night when it was going to be freezing cold. So I kind of panicked, and I ran around trying to figure out how to plug in my what's miners, my two Bitcoin miners that I had, because I was like, all right, well... If I can keep, if I can just keep a steady, you know, uh, some steady heat in the house, that would be great. I actually had um, somebody come out, an electric, electrician come out that same day, install two outlets, uh, two uh, 20 amp, 220 outlets um, downstairs while I ran around and tried to get the plugs that fit into uh, the back of the what's miners because the ones that I got didn't have plugs with them. I didn't even realize it. Of course, it was a completely non-standard plug, so I went to electrical supply, I tried to figure out how to splice, I mean, I did basically everything I feasibly could within the day, and had nothing. So I went to Lowe's before they closed that night and picked up a bunch of infrared heaters, um, and what's funny is that that would have been really great. I wanted to do a guy's take about how Bitcoin, Bitcoin miners saved <laughs> the Swan family. But I did order the cables, and they will be here in a day or two. We did make it through the night. It's a little bit obnoxious trying to manage the heat in this house with a bunch of heaters sitting around on the floor. But it works-ish. And this was all started, by the way. The reason our heat was out is because we have a squirrel living in the attic, and he's chewing through wires. And the fan in my bathroom stopped because he's, chew he's chewed through the wire, um, he's chewing through the wire. It, the copper is not exposed yet. I can see it. But he's chewed through the wire on a light that I installed in the living room. And so I'm trying to get rid of this dude. Um, and I spent almost this entire morning trying to get things installed upstairs. The uh, noisemaker, the pest repellent thing. Uh, and I'm waiting on the trap. 
But the very next day, while it's like 17 degrees outside, the power went out <laughs> because there was too much load on the grid. And it was like a ton of power went out in North Carolina. So that was fun and a little bit scary for a couple hours. That was on Christmas Eve. So we were trying to decide if we wanted to bail out and, you know, just abandon ship. Um, and we had nothing ready for Christmas. And it's Rad's first Christmas. So we wanted it to be nice. And it was an absolute hellhole. So we went full on crazy mode. And I could tell I was getting a little bit sick then. But I wanted to pretend it wasn't the case. Um... And I went really, really hard that day, and we stayed up till like 2 o'clock getting everything right, and we, we made it work. We got some Christmas decorations. We got lights on the tree, finally. Uh, we got everything wrapped, and I was sick as a dog for Christmas. Um, and then I've been sick since. Uh, this is the first day that I actually feel a little bit like myself. Still a little stopped up, but I hope it won't be too noticeable in the recording. And then, of course, in the midst of this last pass gets like a massive hack uh one of the biggest breaches they've ever had um actually the biggest breach they've ever had and i just don't trust them they they i mean it's a centralized institution you know they say that your um vault is safe because it's encrypted and but we found out that so there's been like a three stage of them telling us more information um, and they've avoided giving the full story, but at the end of it all, it seems like the emails, the, or the, the, the account names and the labels and the email addresses and usernames and all these things that are, um, done in your vault so that you can see, like you'd be able to see that like it's this account at this website with this username was plain text, was available and supposedly all the encryption happens on the client side so that they have a copy of everyone's vault, but if you have a strong random password, they can't brute force into it. But I was under the impression that they couldn't see anything in my vault. And obviously having emails exposed and stuff opens you up to phishing attacks. And I have a very strong password, so I'm not... If I'm taking them at their word, I'm not super concerned about getting access to my password, but I'm not taking them at their word. And somebody said that they had some seed phrases. Somebody posted on Twitter said they had some seed phrases in their last pass, and they had a very strong password for their vault, and that they had some accounts emptied. And I'm like, great. Like, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if he made a mistake somewhere else. But I'm not trusting it. So now I have 200 email, I mean, 200 passwords to change. And I, I went through and changed 12 of them or 14 of the most critical ones uh, last night uh, while I was sick in bed. And I can tell you right now, that's not going to be fun. That is, changing passwords is not a quick thing. And holy crap, the number, I've basically been leaning on LastPass for everything online. I mean, I've not been putting seed phrases in it because I'm not stupid, but I have put in a couple of, I have put in like a seed phrase or two for some mobile throwaway wallets that I was just like doing on the fly. There's not really anything in them, but God, that's just, that is a task. So I'm still fighting with the squirrel, still trying to get my miners hooked up. 
still trying to figure out exactly what to do to solve the heat problem in my house. Still changing passwords and still a little bit sick. But hey, the house is carbon monoxide free. That's, that's a positive. And I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm happy. Very much so. And I'm so behind the number of things I have to read now. Um, I'm going to have to do everything that I can to just pump out episodes because, God, there's just an ocean of awesome stuff that I want to cover. Um, and I really want to get to it all. So I'm done wasting time. That's, that's the update on Guy's uh, life situation. And I apologize for taking so long to get back to this. But we're going to dive right back in to the IMF and World Bank and how they repress poor countries. Uh, Alex Gladstein's piece that we were covering before, and we are jumping into part four of this. So that's probably the longest intro I've ever had. So <laughs> let's dig in. A quick thank you to Swan Bitcoin, the prime uh, Bitcoin onboarding experience. You're trying to figure out how to get into Bitcoin and do anything and understand anything about Bitcoin. Just go straight to swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And then make sure to add your fiat cheat code where you have a fold debit card and you get sats back on everything that you spend money on. No joke, this is an amazing way to stack sats. Link in the show notes. And then all those sats you're going to buy on Swan, you're going to do your automatic stack. And all the sats you're going to get back on fold and the daily spins and all the gift cards, you're going to take those sats, you're going to withdraw them to your cold card or one of the many other uh, Bitcoin hardware solutions, this is the thing that you need. Just the, the most basic thing. Get yourself a solid hardware wallet. The Cold Card Mark IV is an amazing and very versatile wallet. It's been around for... The Cold Card is, has been around for ages. CoinKite is a Bitcoin-only company. Check them out. Plus, you get discounts with my code. And you'll find it right there in the show notes. So now that you've done that, now that you're stacking sats and you're keeping them safe, let's jump in to today's read. This will be part four of Alex Gladstein's How the IMF and World Bank Repress Poor Countries. We're jumping in on the section titled Part 10, White Elephants. What Africa needs to do is grow. Grow Out of Debt George Ayati By the mid-1970s, it was clear to Western policymakers, and especially to bank president Robert McNamara, that the only way poor countries would be able to pay back their debt was with more debt. The IMF had always paired its lending with structural adjustment, but for its first few decades, the bank would give project-specific or sector-specific loans with no additional conditions attached. This changed during McNamara's tenure, as less specific structural adjustment loans became popular and then even dominant at the bank during the 1980s. The reason was simple enough. Bank workers had a lot more money to lend out, and it was easier to give away large sums of money if the money was not tied up to specific projects. As payer notes, twice as many dollars per staff week of work could be dispersed through structural adjustment loans. The borrowers, Hancock says, couldn't be happier. 
Corrupt ministers of finance and dictatorial presidents from Asia, Africa, and Latin America tripped over their own expensive footwear in their unseemly haste to get adjusted. For such people, money was probably never easier to obtain. With no complicated projects to administer and no messy accounts to keep, the venal, the cruel, and the ugly laughed literally all the way to the bank. For them, structural adjustment was like a dream come true. No sacrifices were demanded of them personally. All they had to do, amazing but true, was screw the poor. Beyond general-use structural adjustment loans, the other way to spend large amounts of money was to finance massive individual projects. These would become known as white elephants, and their carcasses still dot the deserts, mountains, and forests of the developing world. These behemoths were notorious for their human and environmental devastation. A good example would be the billion-dollar Inga Dams, built in Zaire in 1972, whose bank-funded architects electrified the exploitation of the mineral-rich Katanga province without installing any transformers along the way to help the vast number of villagers who were still using oil lamps. Or the Chad Cameroon pipeline in the 1990s, this $3.7 billion bank-funded project was built entirely to siphon resources out of the ground to enrich the Debbie dictatorship and its foreign collaborators without any benefits to the people. Between 1979 and 1983, bank-financed hydroelectric projects quote, resulted in the involuntary resettlement of at least 400,000 to 450,000 people on four continents. Hancock details many such white elephants in Lords of Poverty. One example is the Singrali Power and Coal Mining Complex in India's Uttar Pradesh state, which received nearly a billion dollars in bank funding. Here, Hancock writes, Because of development, 300,000 poor rural people were subjected to frequent forced relocations as new mines and power stations opened. The land was totally destroyed and resembled scenes out of the lower circles of Dante's Inferno. Enormous amounts of dust and air and water pollution of every conceivable sort created tremendous public health problems. Tuberculosis was rampant, potable water supplies destroyed, and chloroquine-resistant malaria afflicted the area. Once prosperous villages and hamlets were replaced by unspeakable hovels and shacks on the edges of huge infrastructure projects, some people were living inside the open pit mines. Over 70,000 previously self-sufficient peasant farmers, deprived of all other possible sources of income, had no choice but to accept the indignity of intermittent employment at Singrali for salaries at around 70 cents a day, below survival level even in India. In Guatemala, Hancock describes a giant hydroelectric dam called the Chicxoy, built with World Bank support in the Mayan highlands. Originally budgeted at $340 million, he writes, the construction costs had risen to $1 billion by the time the dam was opened in 1985. The money was lent to the Guatemalan government by a consortium led by the World Bank. General Romero Lucas Arica's military government, in power during the bulk of the construction phase and which signed the contract with the World Bank, was recognized by political analysts as having been the most corrupt administration in the history of a Central American country 
in a region that has been afflicted by more than its fair share of venal and dishonest regimes. Members of the junta pocketed about $350 million out of the $1 billion provided for Chicxoy. And finally, in Brazil, Hancock details one of the bank's most harmful projects, a, quote, massive colonization and resettlement scheme known as Pala Noroeste. By 1985, the bank had committed $434.3 million to the initiative, which ended up transforming, quote, poor people into refugees on their own land. The scheme persuaded hundreds of thousands of needy people to migrate from Brazil's central and southern provinces to relocate themselves as farmers in the Amazon basin to generate cash crops. The bank's money, Hancock wrote, paid for the speedy paving of Highway BR-364, which runs into the heart of the northwestern province of Redonia. All the settlers traveled along this road on their way to farms that they slashed and burned out of the jungle. Already 4% deforested in 1982, Redonia was 11% deforested in 1985. NASA space surveys showed that the area of deforestation was doubled approximately every two years. As a result of the project, in 1988, quote, tropical forests covering an area larger than Belgium were burnt by settlers. Hancock also notes that more than 200,000 settlers were estimated to have contracted a particularly virulent strain of malaria, endemic in the Northwest, to which they had no resistance. Such grotesque projects were the result of the massive growth of lending institutions, a detachment of the creditors from the actual places they were lending to, and management by unaccountable local autocrats who pocketed billions along the way. They were the outcome of policies that tried to lend as much money as possible to third world countries to keep the debt Ponzi going and to keep the flow of resources from south to north moving. The grimmest example of all might be found in Indonesia. Part 11. A Real-Life Pandora. The Exploitation of West Papua. With the last pass breach, with the Twitter breach, with everything going on right now, guys, if you don't have a hardware wallet yet, if you don't have a basic, if you don't, if you haven't got a cold card and withdrawn your Bitcoin to your keys, you are doing it wrong. Seriously, this is the number one thing you can do for your security and safety in the Bitcoin space. And in particular, the cold card Mark IV is just a phenomenal and incredibly versatile wallet. You can use it with mobile, with NFC. Uh, you can use it, uh, like plug it in like it's a drive. You can use the SD card, the micro SD card for transferring transaction data back and forth, which is the traditional way. So you actually keep the device air gapped. And there are so many cool little features and extra security uh, elements built into the cold card and how it works. Um, I mean, literally just go, you can go through the website. Obviously I've got the link and a discount code for you guys right there in the show notes. Um, but, uh, go through like, uh, BTC sessions, like YouTube videos. Um, he has like a breakdown of the entire thing. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes for that too. Cause there are so many cool things like the duress pin, 
the the you know the backup and the you know passphrase while it's like just just all sorts of little things it's it's one of those things that you just like keep exploring and you realize that oh man there's another neat little thing here that i didn't realize and that's not even to mention i actually got my brother a tap signer for christmas um i'm not sure if he set it up yet but i'm i'm kind of stoked uh that now we have two people in the swan family who have tap signers and as far as hardware wallets go it's an incredibly simple uh, I mean, it's it's literally a card, um, and it's really easy to set up, and it's really easy to use. So just check them out. Link is in the show notes. Discounts for all the audionauts out there. Protect your freaking keys, guys. Go to coinkite.com. But for now, let's jump back into the show. Part 11. A Real-Life Pandora. The Exploitation of West Papua. You want a fair deal? You're on the wrong planet. Jake Sully. The island of New Guinea is resource-rich beyond imagination. It contains, just for starters, the third largest expanse of tropical rainforest in the world, after the Amazon and the Congo. The world's largest gold and copper mine at Grassburg, in the shadow of the 4,800-meter seven-summit pink of Punchak Jaya, and offshore the Coral Triangle, a tropical sea known for its unparalleled reef diversity. And yet, the people of the island, especially those living in the California-sized western half under Indonesian control, are some of the poorest in the world. Resource colonialism has long been a curse for the residents of this territory, known as West Papua. Whether the pillage was committed by the Dutch or in more recent decades the Indonesian government, imperialists have found generous support from the bank and the fund. This essay already mentioned how one of the World Bank's first loans was to the Dutch, which it used to try and sustain its colonial empire in Indonesia. In 1962, Imperial Holland was finally defeated, and gave up control over West Papua to the Sukarno government as Indonesia became independent. However, the Papuans, also known as the Irianese, wanted their own freedom. In the course of that decade, as the IMF credited the Indonesian government with more than $100 million, Papuans were purged from positions of leadership. In 1969, in an event that would make George Orwell's Oceana blush, Jakarta held the Act of Free Choice, a poll where 1,025 people were rounded up and forced to vote in front of armed soldiers. The results to join Indonesia were unanimous, and the vote was ratified by the UN General Assembly. After that, locals had no say in what, quote, development projects would proceed. Oil, copper, and timber were all harvested and removed from the island in the following decades, with no involvement by Papuans, except as forced labor. The mines, highways, and ports in West Papua were not built with the well-being of the population in mind, but rather were built to loot the island as efficiently as possible. As Payer was able to observe even in 1974, the IMF helped transform Indonesia's vast natural resources into, quote, mortgages for an indefinite future to subsidize an oppressive military dictatorship and to pay for imports which supported the lavish lifestyle of the generals in Jakarta. A 1959 article on the discovery of gold in the area 
is the beginning of the story of what would later become the Grassberg Mine, the world's lowest cost and largest producer of copper and gold. In 1972, the Phoenix-based Freeport signed a deal with Indonesian dictator Suharto to extract gold and copper from West Papua without any consent from the indigenous population. Until 2017, Freeport controlled 90% of the project's shares, with 10% in the hands of the Indonesian government and 0% for the Amongmi and Kamaro tribes who actually inhabit the area. By the time Grassberg's treasures are fully depleted by the Freeport Corporation, the project will have generated some 6 billion tons of waste, more than twice as much rock as was excavated to dig the Panama Canal. The ecosystems downstream from the mine have since been devastated and stripped of life as more than a billion tons of waste have been dumped, quote, directly into a jungle river in what has been one of the world's last untouched landscapes. Satellite reports show the devastation wrought by the ongoing dumping of more than 200,000 of toxic tailings per day into an area that contains the Lorentz National Park, a World Heritage Site. Freeport remains the largest foreign taxpayer in Indonesia and the biggest employer in West Papua. It plans to stay until 2040, when the gold will run out. As the World Bank writes candidly in its very own report on the region, quote, International business interests want better infrastructure in order to extract and export the non-renewable mineral and forest assets. By far the most shocking program that the bank financed in West Papua was transmigration, a euphemism for settler colonization. For more than a century, the powers in control of Java, home to most of Indonesia's population, dreamed of moving large chunks of Javanese to farther-flung islands in the archipelago. Not just to spread things out, but also to ideologically, quote, unify the territory. In a 1985 speech, the Minister of Transmigration said that, quote, By way of transmigration, we will try to integrate all the ethnic groups into one nation, the Indonesian nation. The different ethnic groups will in the long run disappear because of integration. There will be one kind of man. These efforts to resettle Javanese, known as transmigrasi, began during colonial times. But in the 1970s and 1980s, the World Bank began financing these activities in an aggressive way. The bank allocated hundreds of millions of dollars to the Saharto dictatorship to allow it to transmigrate what were hoped to be millions of people to places like East Timor and West Papua in what was the world's largest ever exercise in human resettlement. By 1986, the bank had committed no less than $600 million directly to support transmigration, which entailed, quote, a breathtaking combination of human rights abuses and environmental destruction. Consider the story of the sago palm, one of the main traditional foodstuffs of Papuans. One tree alone was able to supply food for a family for 6 to 12 months, but the Indonesian government, at the encouragement of the bank, came and said, no, this is not working, you need to eat rice. And so the Sago Gardens were cut down to grow rice for export, and the locals were forced to buy rice in the market, which simply made them more dependent on Jakarta. Any resistance was met with brutality. 
especially under Suharto, who held as many as 100,000 political prisoners. But even today, in 2022, West Papua is a police state almost without rival. Foreign journalists are virtually banned. Free speech does not exist. The military operates without any accountability. NGOs like Tapol document a legion of human rights violations, ranging from mass surveillance of personal devices, restrictions on when and for what reason people can leave their homes, and even rules on how Papuans can wear their hair. Between 1979 and 1984, some 59,700 trans migrants were taken to West Papua with large-scale support from the World Bank. More than 20,000 Papuans fled the violence into neighboring Papua New Guinea. Refugees reported to international media that, quote, their villages were bombed, their settlements burned, women raped, livestock killed, and numbers of people indiscriminately shot while others were imprisoned and tortured. A subsequent project backed by a $160 million bank loan in 1985 was called Transmigration 5, the seventh bank-funded project in support of settler colonialism. It aimed to finance the relocation of 300,000 families between 1986 and 1992. The regime's governor of West Papua at the time described the indigenous people as, quote, living in a Stone Age era and called for a further 2 million Javanese migrants to be sent to the islands so that, quote, backwards local people could intermarry with the newcomers, thus giving birth to a new generation of people without curly hair. The original and final versions of the Transmigration 5 loan agreement were leaked to Survival International. The original version made, quote, extensive reference to the bank's policies on tribal peoples, and provides a list of measures that would be required to comply with these. But the final version made no reference to the bank's policies. Transmigration 5 ran into budget issues and was cut short, but ultimately 161,600 families were moved, at a cost of 14,146 bank staff months. The bank was clearly financing cultural genocide, Today, ethnic Papuans make up no more than 30% of the territory's population. But social engineering wasn't the only goal of taking money from the bank. 17% of funds for transmigration projects were estimated to have been stolen by government officials. Fifteen years later, on December 11, 2001, the World Bank approved a $200 million loan to, quote, improve road conditions in West Papua and other parts of eastern Indonesia. The project, known as EIRTP, aimed to improve the condition of national and other strategic arterial roads in order to reduce transport costs and provide more reliable access among provincial centers, regional development and production areas, and other key transport facilities. Reducing road transport costs, the bank said, will help to lower input prices, raise output prices, and increase the competitiveness of local products from the affected areas. In other words, the bank was helping to extract resources as efficiently as possible. The bank and fund's history in Indonesia is so outrageous that it seems like it must be from another time, ages ago. But that's simply not true. Between 2003 and 2008, 
The bank funded palm oil development in Indonesia to the tune of nearly $200 million and hired private companies who were alleged to have, quote, used fire to clear primary forests and seize lands belonging to indigenous people without due process. Today, the Indonesian government remains on the hook for the EIRTP loan. In the past five years, the bank has collected $70 million in interest payments from the Indonesian government and taxpayer, all for its efforts to accelerate the extraction of resources from islands like West Papua. Part 12. The World's Biggest Ponzi Countries Don't Go Bankrupt Walter Riston, former chairman of Citibank One might consider bankruptcy an important and even essential part of capitalism. But the IMF basically exists to prevent the free market from working as it normally would. It bails out countries that normally would go bankrupt, forcing them instead deeper into debt. The fund makes the impossible possible. Small, poor countries hold so much debt that they could never pay it all off. These bailouts corrupt the incentives of the global financial system. In a true free market, there would be serious consequences for risky lending. The creditor bank could lose its money. When the U.S., Europe, or Japan made their deposits at the bank and fund, it was similar to purchasing insurance on their ability to extract wealth from developing nations. Their private banks and multinational corporations are protected by the bailout scheme, and on top of it, they earn handsome, steady interest paid for by poor countries on what is widely perceived to be humanitarian assistance. As David Graeber writes in Debt, when banks, quote, lent money to dictators in Bolivia and Gabon in the late 70s, they made utterly irresponsible loans with the full knowledge that once it became known that they had done so, politicians and bureaucrats would scramble to ensure that they'd still be reimbursed anyway, no matter how many lives had to be devastated and destroyed in order to do it. Kevin Danaher describes the tension that began to emerge in the 1960s. Quote, Borrowers began to pay back more annually to the bank than it dispersed in new loans. In 1963, 1964, and 1969, India transferred more money to the World Bank than the bank dispersed to it. Technically, India was paying off its debts plus interest, but the bank's leadership saw a crisis. To solve the problem, Danaher continues, Bank President Robert McNamara increased lending, quote, at a phenomenal rate, from $953 million in 1968 to $12.4 billion in 1981. The number of IMF lending programs also more than doubled from 1976 to 1983, mostly to poor countries. The bank and the fund's assurances led the world's titanic money center banks, as well as hundreds of regional and local banks in the U.S. and Europe, quote, most of them with little or no previous history of foreign lending, to go on an unprecedented lending spree. The third world debt bubble finally burst in 1982, when Mexico announced a default. According to official IMF history, quote, private bankers envisaged the dreaded possibility of a widespread repudiation of debts, such as had occurred in the 1930s, at that time, the debt owed by debtor countries to industrial countries was mostly in the form of securities issued by debtor countries in the U.S., 
and in the form of bonds sold abroad. In the 1980s, the debt was almost entirely in the form of short- and medium-term loans from commercial banks and the industrial members. Monetary authorities of industrial members instantly realized the urgency of the problem posed for the world's banking system. In other words, the threat that the banks of the West might have holes in their balance sheet was the danger, not the millions who would die of austerity programs in poor countries. In her book, A Fate Worse Than Debt, the development critic Susan George charts how the top nine largest U.S. banks all had placed more than 100% of their shareholders' equity in, quote, loans to Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and Venezuela alone. The crisis was averted, however, as the IMF helped credit flow to third-world countries, even though they should have gone bankrupt. Simply put, according to a technical analysis of the fund, its programs, quote, provide bailouts for private lenders to emerging markets, thereby allowing international creditors to benefit from foreign lending without bearing the full risks involved. The banks reap significant profits if borrowers repay their debts and avoid losses if financial crises occur. Latin American citizens suffered under structural adjustment, but between 1982 and 1985, George reported that, quote, in spite of overexposure to Latin America, dividends declared by the big nine banks increased by more than a third during the same period. Profits in that time rose by 84% at Chase Manhattan and 66% at Bankers Trust, and stock value rose by 86% at Chase and 83% at Citicorp. Clearly, she wrote, austerity is not the term to describe the experiences since 1982, of either the third world elite or the international banks, the parties that contracted the loans in the first place. The generosity of the West enabled unaccountable leaders to plunge their nations into debt deeper than ever before. The system was, as Payer writes in Lent and Lost, a straightforward Ponzi scheme. The new loans went straight to paying for the old loans. The system needed to grow to avoid collapse. By keeping financing going, an IMF managing director said, according to Payer, structural adjustment loans permitted trade that might otherwise not have been possible. Given that the bank and fund will prevent even the most comically corrupt and wasteful governments from going bankrupt, private banks adapted their behavior accordingly. A good example would be Argentina, which has received 22 IMF loans since 1959, even trying to default in 2001. One would think that creditors would stop lending to such a profligate borrower, but in fact, just four years ago, Argentina received the largest IMF loan of all time, a staggering $57.1 billion. Payer summed up the debt trap, by stating that the moral of her work was, quote, both simple and old-fashioned, that nations, like individuals, cannot spend more than they earn without falling into debt, and a heavy debt burden bars the way to autonomous action. But the system makes the deal too sweet for the creditors. Profits are monopolized, while losses are socialized. 
Payer realized this even 50 years ago in 1974, and hence concluded that, quote, in the long run, it is more realistic to withdraw from an exploitative system and suffer the dislocation of readjustment than it is to petition the exploiters for a degree of relief. Part 13. Do as I say, not as I do. <clears throat> we got a real spicy section here about some epic, epic IMF World Bank hypocrisy. But before we get into it, we're going to talk about Fold. We're going to talk about a cheat code to get on every fiat purchase. Every time you're using the fiat trash that the countries, that the Western world is using to exploit you, you can get sound money. You can get sats in return for spending fiat. And not on Bitcoin, which you can do in the Fold app as well but for spending your normal fiat on normal fiat purchases that you do all the time, for your bills, for your taxes, for your health care, for your day-to-day groceries and gas, everything that you spend with your debit card, you get a base 1% back, or you can get, uh, you get a chance at spinning the wheel of sats with all sorts of different prizes and variations and how much you can win, up to like 100% and even a full Bitcoin. And honestly, if you use it enough, you'll hit some of those serious ones. I got 100% back once, and it was pretty boss. I got the $50 back on like a $70 purchase or something like that. And that's just a debit card. You get like 3% back on like Uber and Airbnb. You get 5%, the premium card holders get 5% back on Amazon. Like, this is the best, like, no, no extra work having to be done way to have a SATS savings account. That's one of my favorite things about it. And it's also a great talking point. I get other people to spin for me all the time. Like, I get the people at the vet know me as the dude who comes in and gets them to spin for the vet purchase every single time. I have the coffee, like my coffee baristas or whatever, like, spin for me. Uh, the, the dude at the farmer's market does it when I'm buying my meat. It's a really fun and kind of silly, enjoyable way to actually introduce Bitcoin, to tell them, you know, what's going on. So check it out. Go to guyswan.com slash fold, and there is a link for you right in the show notes. All right, let's jump back in on this section. Part 13. Do as I say. Not as I do. Our lifestyle is not up for negotiation. George H.W. Bush In a true global free market, the policies that the bank and fund impose on poor countries might make sense. After all, the record of socialism and large-scale nationalization of industry is disastrous. The problem is, the world is not a free market and double standards are everywhere. Subsidies, for example, free rice in Sri Lanka or discounted fuel in Nigeria, are ended by the IMF, yet creditor nations like the UK and US extend state-funded health care and crop subsidies to their own populations. One can take a libertarian or Marxist view and arrive at the same conclusion. This is a double standard which enriches some countries at the expense of others, 
with most citizens of rich countries blissfully unaware. To help build out from the rubble of World War II, IMF creditors relied heavily on central planning and anti-free market policy for the first few decades after Bretton Woods. For example, import restrictions, capital outflow limits, foreign exchange caps, and crop subsidies. These measures protected industrial economies when they were most vulnerable. In the U.S., for example, the Interest Equalization Act was passed by John F. Kennedy to stop Americans from buying foreign securities and instead focus them on domestic investing. This was one of many measures to tighten capital controls, but the bank and fund have historically prevented poor countries from using these same tactics to defend themselves. As Payer observes, The IMF has never played a deciding role in the adjustment of exchange rates and trade practices among the wealthy developed nations. It is the weaker nations which are subjected to the full force of the IMF principles. The inequality of power relationships meant that the fund could do nothing about market distortions, such as trade protection, which were practiced by the rich countries. Cato's Vasquez and Bandau came to a similar conclusion, noting that, quote, most industrialized nations have maintained a patronizing attitude towards underdeveloped nations, hypocritically shutting out their exports. In the early 1990s, while the U.S. stressed the importance of free trade, it, quote, erected a virtual iron curtain against Eastern Europe's exports, including textiles, steel, and agricultural products. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, Russia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan were all targeted. The U.S. prevented Eastern European nations from selling, quote, a single pound of butter, dry milk, or ice cream in America. And both the Bush and Clinton administrations imposed stiff chemical and pharmaceutical import restrictions on the region. It is estimated that protectionism by industrial countries reduces developing countries' national income by roughly twice as much as provided by development assistance. In other words, if Western nations simply opened their economies, they wouldn't have to provide any development assistance at all. There is a sinister twist to the arrangement. When a Western country, i.e. the U.S., runs into an inflationary crisis, like today's, and is forced to tighten its monetary policy, it actually gains more control over developing countries and their resources, whose dollar debt becomes much more difficult to pay back, and who fall deeper into the debt trap, and deeper into bank and fund conditionality. In 2008, during the Great Financial Crisis, American and European authorities lowered interest rates and juiced up banks with extra cash. During the Third World Debt Crisis and the Asian Financial Crisis, the bank and fund refused to permit this kind of behavior. Instead, the recommendation to afflicted economies was to tighten at home and borrow more from abroad. In September 2022, newspaper headlines stated that the IMF was, quote, worried about inflation in the United Kingdom, as its bond market teetered on the brink of collapse. This is, of course, another hypocrisy, given that the IMF did not seem worried about inflation when it imposed currency devaluation on billions of people for decades. 
creditor nations play by different rules. In a final case of do as I say, not as I do, the IMF still holds a whopping 90.5 million ounces, or 2,814 metric tons, of gold. Most of this was accumulated in the 1940s, when members were forced to pay 25% of their original quotas in gold. In fact, until the 1970s, members, quote, normally paid all interest owed on IMF credit in gold. When Richard Nixon formally ended the gold standard in 1971, the IMF did not sell its gold reserves, and yet attempts by any member countries to fix their currency to gold are forbidden. Part 14. Green Colonialism If you turn the electricity off for a few months in any developed Western society, 500 years of supposed philosophical progress about human rights and individualism would quickly evaporate like they never happened. Murtaza Hussein In the past few decades, a new double standard has emerged. Green colonialism. This at least is what the Senegalese entrepreneur Magat Wade calls the West hypocrisy over energy use in an interview for this article. Wade reminds us that industrial countries developed their civilizations by utilizing hydrocarbons, in large part stolen or bought on the cheap from poor countries or colonies. But today, the bank and fund try to push policies which prohibit the developing world from doing the same. Where the U.S. and U.K. were able to use coal and the third world's oil, the bank and fund want African countries to use solar and wind manufactured and financed by the West. This hypocrisy was on full display a few weeks ago in Egypt, where world leaders gathered at COP27, the Sharm el-Sheikh Climate Change Conference, to discuss how to reduce energy use. The location on the African continent was intentional. Western leaders currently scrambling to import more fossil fuels after their access to Russian hydrocarbons was curtailed flew in on gas-guzzling private jets to plead with poor countries to reduce their carbon footprint. In typical bank-and-fund tradition, the ceremonies were hosted by the resident military dictator. During the festivities, Allah Abdul Fattah, a prominent Egyptian human rights activist, languished nearby on hunger strike in prison. Just like back in the day when we were colonized and the colonizers set the rules to how our societies would work, Wade said, this green agenda is a new form of governing us. This is Master now dictating to us what our relationship with energy should be, telling us what kind of energy we should use and when we can use it. The oil is in our soil. It is part of our sovereignty. But now they are saying we cannot use it? even after they looted incalculable amounts for themselves? Wade points out that as soon as the core countries have an economic crisis, as they now face heading into the winter of 2022, they go right back to using fossil fuels. She observes that poor countries aren't allowed to develop nuclear energy, and notes that when third world leaders tried to push in this direction in the past, some of them, notably in Pakistan and Brazil, were assassinated. Wade says her life's work is prosperity building in Africa. She was born in Senegal and moved to Germany at age seven. She still remembers her first day in Europe. She was used to a shower being a 30-minute affair. Get the coal stove going, boil the water, 
put some cold water in it to cool it down and drag the water to the shower area. But in Germany, all she had to do was turn a handle. I was shocked, she says. This question defined the rest of my life. How come they have this, but we don't over there? Wade learned over time that reasons for Western success included the rule of law, clear and transferable property rights, and stable currencies, but also, critically, reliable energy access. We can't have limitations on our energy use imposed on us by others, Wade said, and yet the bank and fund continue to put pressure on energy policy in poor countries. Last month, Haiti followed pressure from the bank and fund to end its fuel subsidies. The result, wrote energy reporter Michael Schellenberger, has been riots, looting, and chaos. In 2018, Schellenberger writes, the Haitian government agreed to IMF demands that it cut fuel subsidies as a prerequisite for receiving $96 million from the World Bank, European Union, and Inter-American Development Bank, triggering protests that resulted in the resignation of the Prime Minister. In over 40 nations since 2005, he says, Riots have been triggered after cutting fuel subsidies or otherwise raising energy prices. It is the height of hypocrisy for the West to achieve success based on robust energy consumption and on energy subsidies, and then try to limit the type and amount of energy used by poor countries, and then raise the price that their citizens pay. This amounts to a Malthusian scheme in line with former bank chief Robert McNamara's well-documented belief that population growth was a threat to humanity. The solution, of course, was always to try and reduce the population of poor countries, not rich ones. They treat us like little experiments, Wade says, where the West says, we might lose some people along the way, but let's see if poor countries can develop without the energy types we used. Well, she says, we are not an experiment. Part 15. The Human Toll of Structural Adjustment To the World Bank, development means growth, but unrestrained growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Mohammed Yunus All right. Whew, we're going to stop there. I'm getting lightheaded. I have, I have recorded as much as I can record today. Um, and we've only got three sections left. Um, still, there's still some pretty long sections here. Um, but we're definitely going to finish this out in one more episode. Uh, and then I'll have the full thing published, unabridged, with no guys take, no nothing, uh, full from beginning to end. I'm not even sure how long this is going to be. This is going to be like two hours. Actually, maybe a little bit longer, like two and a half or something. But then I Definitely, definitely. The notes are ridiculous. We're probably going to have a two-hour guy's take as a follow-up to this one, man. I have got so many saved quotes uh, from this. And there's so many... God, there's so many great ones. In fact, I'm just going to... I'm going to hit one good one that we will recover more in-depth in the guy's take to follow all of this. But, um, but this one just... Uh, this one just hit me because it's one of those things that you know and you... You kind of see so many times when you're digging through all of this stuff, but to have it put back in your face and kind of be reminded in the context of what we're reading about with the IMF and the World Bank is just incredible sometimes. Quote, 
it is estimated that protectionism by industrial countries reduces developing countries' national income by roughly twice as much as provided by development assistance. In other words, if Western nations simply opened their economies, they wouldn't have to provide any development assistance at all. So consider, consider the scam that is being played here. They're purposely closing off the trade from their own countries to raise the costs to the poor countries in getting these goods and services and the exports from the rich nations, which is requiring, which is then forcing them to be dependent on development assistance, which is given as debts that they cannot pay back and that are coming with stipulations, but are coming, coming with ungodly amounts of strings attached telling them exactly what they have to do to reshape their economies from producing them for themselves and from creating their own prosperity in order to export cheap goods and services to the rich countries and trapping them in this this cycle and they're doing it in the name of helping them they're doing this as this as if this is some generosity that they are doing when in fact, had they been able to actually produce and prosper for themselves and create their own institutions and their own infrastructure, they'd actually be able to grow and they would not have an impossible debt burden. And if the rich countries, if the Western nations actually opened up their economies and didn't play protectionist tariffs and capital controls, then they'd actually get access to, uh, to the productivity the, the, the cost, the, the lower cost of productivity from wealthy, wealthy nations that do have the infrastructure and do have the productive capacity that the poor nations don't have, which means they'd be better off both ways, both ways. They'd benefit massively if we just stopped all of it. It's so crazy. It's so crazy how deep and, and, and you know, you could even say that like, the, you know, I still don't know if I believe that there's some overarching architect of all of this, but that it's a consequence of one bad decision and one imbalance and one disincentive in the, the lack of sound money that, that results in the need to fix another thing. And the only, and the lowest, lowest common denominator, that's not the term, the the shortest path, the path of least resistance to doing that is to take advantage of the disincentive, is to take advantage of the, the malinvestment uh, incentive created by unsound money again. So it's like a trap where you cause a problem and then the only way to, the easiest way to fix the problem is by the system, by manipulating again the system that causes the problem. So it creates this just debt-fueled cyclical nightmare. And there's actually, this actually reminds me of another thing. So um, there's another quote here that says, I, told, I said I wasn't going to get into it, but the fund, the fund makes the impossible possible. Small poor countries hold so much debt that they can never pay it all off. These bailouts corrupt the incentives of the global financial system. In a true free market, there would be serious consequences for risky lending. The creditor bank could lose its money. This is the key to all of it, is that you just can't do this shit with sound money. You can't. 
there's there's no reason to it's you're immediately putting yourself at risk because you're creating something that is unsustainable by definition and if those countries can't go bankrupt because all you do is issue more debt out of nowhere then all that happens is you dig a deeper and deeper and deeper hole until you end up like one of the previous sections i think it was section two but i'm not 100 percent sure where you you find out that far, far more resources have been siphoned from the third world than have even been sent. That all you're looking at, at, at is a massive net negative transfer. What was it, like $50 trillion or something like that? It was absolutely insane. I don't know, it's been like two weeks now. We've been, we've been on this piece forever, so I've already forgotten the exact number. And even, God, even more insane is... Uh, the notion that they talk about in this, which is, which is absolutely true, is that the creditor is still the one that gets everything. Because you know, these it's like, it's like a repo, right? Is that if a lender lends you money in order to buy a house, and then uh, interest rates go up and you can't afford the house anymore, well, then the lender gets your house. But if the lender created it out of thin air, then they just got a house for nothing, and the more they lend the more actual assets and commodities they get. And a prime example of the IMF's hypocrisy in this, in this notion is that the IMF still holds a massive amount of gold. And I didn't even know this. I had no idea, but it makes so much sense too, is that like the IMF knows their paper promises are bullshit and they know they're playing this game. And such a prime example of this, it says, quote, in a final case of do as I say, not as I do, the IMF still holds a whopping 90.5 million ounces, or 2,814 metric tons of gold. Most of this was accumulated in the 1940s, when members were forced to pay 25% of their original quotas in gold. In fact, until the 1970s, members normally paid all interest owed on IMF credit on IMF credit in gold. When Richard Nixon formally ended the gold standard in 1971, the IMF did not sell its gold reserves, and yet attempts by any member countries to fix their currency to gold are forbidden. Just incredible. The IMF literally does internally still work on sound money. They just don't want to let anyone else do it. They force their paper promises on the world. They force other countries into debt. They posture it. They pretend they gaslight the world into thinking that they're doing this for someone else's benefit, that this is a giant charity organization. And then they stash the real value of the entire world in their own coffers. And they claim ownership of the assets, the infrastructure, and the resources they force export from all across the third world. And when the value, when the value of their false promises blows up, when their paper currency goes, goes poof the way that every paper currency goes, they're going to still hold all the value. They're going to still have the gold they'll still have the ownership rights to all of the infrastructure and all of the capital. It's just incredible. It's just incredible. All right, we'll close this out here. Um, you know, actually, this is a, 
this is a funny note of why I actually think it's a beautiful thing that Bitcoin is likely to officially and completely demonetize gold in the next like 20 years. Like maybe there will still be a place for gold, but I'm not so sure. And it would be beautiful to see the IMF's trick not work because they fundamentally, they thought that the centralized sound money was going to be the one that persisted and instead we replaced their sound money. We obsoleted their trick by demonetizing what they were trying to steal from the world, which would be real estate, the infrastructure, and the, the gold that they have in their vaults. Because that's what's happened. Again, we, you know, we talk about this a lot, is that so many of the major, like real estate um, and many commodities and gold, of course, have essentially taken on a form of like a collective set of monetary properties. Is it because we don't actually have a good money anymore? We've used a plethora of different assets and commodities within the markets as various monetary roles. In the U.S. in particular, well, actually, pretty much across the entire Western world, real estate is one of the core monetary, uh, monetary goods on the market because you buy a house because the house is going to go up in value. You're trying to maintain value, and it's something that is a depreciating asset in any other context. It's a mountain of crap to keep up with. It rots. Um, things break constantly. As someone who's dealing with the heater breaking and carbon monoxide leaking into the house and a squirrel eating through his wires, Jesus, owning a house is not a profitable enterprise. The fact that it goes up in value is a little bit nuts. But it is simply because it's being monetized. It's because our money is so shitty that you have to park capital somewhere else. And that's what the rich do. That's what BlackRock is doing. That's what most... Uh, that's what it's essentially the large part of corporate investment and these sorts of enterprises end up doing. They buy mountains and mountains of real estate. They want to own the world. They want to own the land because the land goes up in value relative to currency. But Bitcoin is going to demonetize these things because it is merely the presence of sound money that will that will shift this back. That will demonetize these assets and prices. Prices for housing will actually drop to their utility price. The monetary premium will disappear and housing will become affordable again. And not only will we demonetize these pseudo-monetary assets, we will, we will replace the current best sound money with a vastly better one. And most importantly, one that these institutions can't control. And it is a beautiful thing to watch the African nations start to notice this and to notice it from the bottom up that the people in these nations are taking it upon themselves and that they have a strong entrepreneurial spirit. It's so cool. I mean, it just, it's a, it's a degree of poetic justice and a shift that has been needing to happen for so freaking long. It has been so overdue and it's just exciting to think that this is happening. And as much as watching the demise and the destruction of the Western world is such a painful and horrible thing to experience and uh, something that is going to be unbelievably tumultuous in the next 10, 15 years as it unfolds and we get to the other side of this great transition that we're going through. It is also opening up the window. It is also essentially opening up the door for 
the third world and the developing world to potentially have an avenue, to have a, have a window of opportunity to get out from under the thumb of the Western financial system. And I think all the pain and destruction and poverty aside, I think we're looking at a far, far better world on the other side of all of this. And there's actually a quote. Let me find it real quick. I'm going to pause for a second. Okay, yeah, here it is. So, Payer realized this, quote, by the way, Payer realized this even 50 years ago in 1974, and hence concluded that, quote, in the long run, it is more realistic to withdraw from an exploitative system and suffer the dislocation of readjustment than it is to petition the exploiters for a degree of relief. It is better to suffer the pain of exiting and dealing with the consequences in the long run than begging your exploiter for some kind of shift or relief. Sounds eerily similar to Hayek's I don't think we'll ever have enough a good money again until we take the thing out of the hands of government. And not to say that we can take it violently out of the hands of government, but that we must find some sly, roundabout way to introduce something that they cannot stop. I tell you what, that quote never gets old. But, yeah, I will end on that. We'll end on that. I think that's a high note. Um, and I am exhausted. I'm going to have to go get Rad, help Rad get to sleep. So uh, thank you guys so much. Um, I probably recorded too much. Hopefully I didn't, I didn't kill myself for tomorrow. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, but uh, a quick thank you to Swan Bitcoin, to CoinKite, and Fold for supporting the show and uh, uh, keeping the lights on and keeping me fed and keeping me warm <laughs> this winter. And for having products and services that I use literally daily. Literally. Like, I, 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 I use all of them every day. I'm a huge fan of their products and I do not shill them lightly. I, I shill to my users the services and the companies that I trust and that I use. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And I really appreciate that they support the show. As well as all the audio knots and the guys who boost on Fountain. I've got a lot of saved boosts and comments and stuff, which I want to cover in like the next doc guys take or something. But uh, thank you guys. Holy crap. Some of you, some of you guys have given some really big boosts and left some really nice comments, and and it is much, much appreciated. Understand, I do see them. I know that I don't comment about it a lot, but I do, and it means a lot. So thank you. With that, we will close this one out. Thank you so much for listening. I am Guy Swan. This is Bitcoin Audible, and until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. I, however, place economy among the first and most important of virtues, and public debt as the greatest of the dangers to be feared. Thomas Jefferson
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.